Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And then while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes clothes, and lay him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is, he is pleased. When the, earth, when, the, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which, is, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you're looking for a good Christmas story to read this holiday season, uh, might I suggest Lord of the Rings? Um, <laughs> uh, that might be a lot to bite off over your Christmas break. So the movies will do if you just want to want to watch the movies. Um, extended editions, obviously. Um, but you may be skeptical that Lord of the Rings has anything to do with Christmas, but it it does. And I think in a lot of ways, Lord of the Rings embodies a lot of a lot of the Christmas story um, in its themes and thematic elements, even more than a lot of modern Christmas movies and uh, and media does. Um, uh, sure, there isn't Santa and saying ho, 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 and there aren't really Christmas trees, but, but Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, um, really understood some important pieces of Christmas that often gets missed in our modern, modern media. So small, forgotten, unsuspecting people lost on the fringes of society, quickly caught up in a grand narrative of salvation quickly caught up in a, in, a, in a story that's much bigger than themselves, even one that they thought they would never play a significant part in. Now, this, these themes are continually being unpacked in, in, uh, in Lord of the Rings. And you, you know the story, I, at least I hope you know the story. A hobbit, he's small and weak and frail and on the fringes of society, quickly finds himself 
carrying the ring of power despite his inexperience to Mount Doom in order to save the, the known world, in order to save Middle Earth. And even more than that, who comes with him? Who comes with him? Did he hire a mercenary? Did he muster an army? Not at all. He brings his gardener with him and another small, insignificant hobbit on the fringes of, of society. John, when he preached last week, um, uh, found uh, or mentioned that the Christmas story is so audacious. It's so very surprising because of the characters that we find in this story, in this birth narrative. The characters that we see here um, are really surprising characters. And so far as we've thought about Luke's birth narrative, we've looked at two obscure Hebrew women. Two obscure Hebrew women, an elderly, barren wife of a priest, and a teenage girl, a virgin betrothed to a carpenter. Um, These are obscure people, unsuspecting women, but they find themselves quickly caught up in this grand narrative, this story of salvation um, for all people. So when we get to chapter 2, now Jesus is born, and we see that unpacked in verses 1 through 7. The, the, the promise that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary when he spoke to her um, comes to pass. It's fulfilled here in verses 1 through 7. And the promise uh, and the promises that are all made throughout all of the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God, when God tells uh, uh, Adam and Eve, and he curses the serpent and says that the heel of the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of that serpent. Um, this is all coming to pass now in verses 1 through 7. Jesus, the Savior of the world, born in a barn, because Mary and Joseph couldn't find lodging in the city of David. And it was because of he who lay in the animal's food holder that the world took a breath for the very first time in a very long time. But in the world at large, um, this would have been seen as a tick on a tablet of the Roman Census Bureau. Another person to count in this, uh, this global census that was taking place um, but because Caesar Augustus decreed it to take place. Unseen by Caesar Augustus, who was the most powerful man in the world. And unseen by those who slept in their beds in the inn adjacent to the, the barn where Jesus was born. Small, forgotten, unsuspecting people and places became the streams of water from which, from where God would begin filling the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And so in verse 8, we have a scene change. We have another scene change. And we meet another group of unsuspecting, forgotten people, the shepherds. And this is where we're going to focus our time this morning, kind of in 8 through um, eight through the end of the passage that I read. 
The shepherds in our precious moments pictures, maybe you've got a little figurine or you've got a Christmas picture that comes out. Those are pretty idealized. Um, and that's an understatement, really. The shepherds were not a well-to-do crowd at all. They were often dishonest, and that's why they got the job as shepherd. They were relegated to this position in society to watch the flocks um, out on the outskirts of town because they, because they were outcasts. They were often dishonest, and they were unclean often according to the law, and that, so that's why they were out of town. And they were unclean just because they probably needed a bath. <laughs> not, a, not a savory group of people. They participated in very little, if any, of uh, religious life, religious Jewish life. They were out on the fringes, both physically and spiritually. This was not the upper crust of society. The shepherds were the, the dregs. They were the bottom of the cup. They were like, when someone would mention shepherds, it would sort of be like, the face that you would make when you were drinking your orange juice and you get the last, the last drink of pulp and, and you, ugh, right? Like there's some part of you that is, is almost repulsed by the idea. Maybe you like the pulp. I don't know. That's weird. It's okay. This is a, it's a safe space for orange juice drinkers this morning. But here we go again. So um, the two obscure Hebrew women that the angels have appeared to right? Uh, Mary and Elizabeth before her, well, the, Zechariah, um, but uh, Zechariah, the, the angel appears to Gabriel, and then uh, Mary, the angel appears to. Um, and so here we go again, we have another angel appearance, another announcement, the third time in Luke's gospel in, in one now two short chapters uh, that we're looking at, um, it appears to Zechariah, a priest, He's an, up, he's an upright man. He's a, he's a righteous guy. And so this one makes sense. And then we, a, a, a virgin girl who, who really genuinely knows the scriptures, as John unpacked for us last week, she is someone who is, who is clearly in touch with, with Jewish religious life and has been trained and raised up probably in a home that really did a lot of, um, uh, did a lot of work to uh, educate her in the in the scriptures, but this time when we get to chapter two, the angel appears to a bunch of irreligious rednecks on the countryside. And so what I want to do is look at the interaction here, and there's not really much of an interaction, but the, the declaration that, that the angel and then angels make to the shepherds, and then the response of the shepherds to, to this proclamation that comes to them. So, look with me at verse 10. Right there in the middle of what the angel says, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I, will br I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Right embedded in there, we're going to explore some of that language, but right embedded in there is this phrase, good news of great joy. We're going to think about that together this morning. But back up to eight, these three angel appearances in Luke's narrative so far are met with something very specific. They're met with fear. And in Mary's case, the text just tells us that she's troubled. But there's fear and troubled for Zechariah, troubled for Mary. And now the angel appears to these, uh, these shepherds and um, we're told that they 
were filled with great fear. Now, it's a little, the, the language is a little bit more um, extreme here for them. Um, if you remember the KJV, if you watch Charlie Brown Christmas, if anyone's done that, they were sore afraid. They were filled with great fear. They actually felt it in their bones because, uh, because of the fear that they felt. And I think that there's probably good reason for this extreme language here. Um, the shepherds were some serious sinners. And I can only imagine that the glory of the Lord shining around them might have indicated to them or might have made them think immediately, divine judgment is coming upon us at this very moment. I think there were probably several things that went through their heads, but divine judgment is coming upon us. And so for the shepherds, the admonition at the beginning of the angel statement, fear not, um, carries a deep, uh, a deep promise. Like you're not getting snuffed out right now. This is, not, this is not the end for you. And then they're told to look. They said, for behold, look, perceive what I'm about to say. It's good news of great joy the angel brings. Now our translators opt for here, uh, good news of great joy. Um, your Bible might say good tidings or something along that, those lines. But the word here, good news, or I bring you good news in particular, that's one word in the original language, and it appears uh, 51 other times throughout the New Testament. When we see the words good news in our Bible, we need to be thinking of gospel, right? Good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, oftentimes it's translated, and I think it's used by Paul more than anyone else, but it's oftentimes, uh, oftentimes translated preach or proclaim the gospel. So the angel is here preaching or proclaiming the good news. I bring to you, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, the word gospel, the word good news, prior to this point and prior to our New Testament understanding of that term has a pretty... uh, a pretty well-developed history in Roman culture. Um, like good news or the gospel, that term was oftentimes to applied to a proclamation or a celebration uh, of, of like the Roman uh, imperial cult of the emperor. So Caesar, at this point, there was this building notion that Caesar is a, is a deity, he's a god. And that he is to be worshipped, and it would be common in this time frame, maybe not in Judea, but in the world at large, to hear someone say, Caesar is Lord. And so when we're saying Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus is Lord, and when the New Testament communicates to us that Jesus is Lord, there's a very real notion that we're moving against, cutting against um, societal embeddedness. This this notion that Caesar was a deity and that he was was Lord. And so even this this idea would have gone, run so deep that it might have even been considered that Caesar could have, um, he could have commanded even supernatural beings to go out there and make declarations for him. So when they hear good news of great joy, um, when they hear good news or gospel, it would have been a, a, a 
in their minds, it could have actually been, well, Caesar sent these divine beings to us to declare to us some type of, of celebration. This could have been an invitation to Caesar. But now we, we get further in what the angel says, and quickly that can't be the case. But a, because a greater good is here, and this greater good that is for all people is here. A king greater than Caesar has arrived. That's the heart. That's the, that's the core of what the angels are communicating. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is a better king than Caesar. And any pagan celebration in the Roman imperial cult would have seemed pretty pathetic when the king that was being announced to the shepherds inherited his eternal throne. But for now, in all humility, he was a baby laying in a manger. Isaiah foretold of this announcement in Isaiah 52.7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, into Zion, your God reigns. But what, what is this good news of great joy? And again, I just read it. But for unto you, in verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer. This is G- who Jesus is. He is the Christ. Christ is Lord. This is not to call uh, a call to rejoice in momentary political achievement, which would have been the, the extent of the good news that Caesar could have brought, momentary political or mil- military flexing of muscles. But rather, this is a call to be immersed in increasing, abundant, overflowing joy. A good news for a great joy, which will be for all people, which from this moment is extending into the future forevermore. Because this one who came is going to inherit the throne for all of eternity. David's throne, which is promised and actually spoken to Mary, if you remember when the angel appears to Mary. Friends, the great joy that came through, good news of great joy, the great great joy that came through the good news was not limited to the shepherds in the fields. That's not the point of this story. That it's a moment here for the shepherds to rejoice and for us to put a pin back there to remember. Now, it's good to remember what God has done, but but to put a pin back there and think that there was a moment of rejoicing. The great joy that comes with the good news simply started there. This was good news of great joy's beachhead. Um, so so uh, when a certain country's navy lands on the shores of an enemy's country, they establish a, a fixed point and they defend it well so that they can bring in more troops, so that they can bring in more equipment and they can lay siege to that country. They establish a position, they establish a beachhead, and they defend that position. Then more and more things to 
to conquer that country can come by boat. The gospel, which brings with it great joy, those things are woven together, they're, not in, they're, they're inseparable. The gospel that brings great joy established a beachhead that could not be stopped by sin or Satan in the world, and it begins here in Luke 1 and 2. And I want to admit that, and if we're being honest, the good news of great joy's beachhead didn't seem terribly strategic. Irreligious outcast shepherds in the field. Teenage Hebrew girl visiting Bethlehem with the man she was betrothed to. Again, John made mention of this, but why, why not the courts of Caesar? Why not the political powers and kings and rulers? The movers and the shakers, the one who could pull the strings and make stuff happen. I think the answer to that question is simple. So that we might trust in the name of the Lord our God. Teenage girls, elderly women, outcast shepherds, the beachhead for good news of great joy. King David said it like this in Psalm 20. He said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Barren wombs and teenage girls and unclean shepherds were the starting point of the good news of great joy. Was this a defendable beachhead? In our eyes, in the world's eyes, the answer is no. But from these unlikely people, God would quickly advance this good news of great joy from the manger to Galilee to Jerusalem to the high priest to Pontius Pilate to the cross to the enemy's deepest, most impenetrable strongholds putting death itself to death. And then ensuring that any last ditch efforts of that enemy, death, couldn't hold us either by coming back by and in through the resurrection. So when the angel says to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, it's not momentary. It is the starting point. It's not limited to Christmas. It's it's not limited to a certain time of year or a singular event. It's bigger. It's far more consuming. It's what God initiated in the moment. The taking back what was lost when sin entered the world. In human hearts, yes, and in all of creation. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. Consider with me then how the shepherds respond. Consider this response. Because this is important. We're told about their response. And it is a good response. And of course the angelic announcement causes them to go and see. Right? When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see, let us go and see. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
Now, this wouldn't have been an everyday occurrence to have angels show up. So they, when, the, when the angels say, I'll give you this sign, right? Um, it wouldn't also have been an everyday occurrence to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That would have been a little bit abnormal. And so when the angel says that and they go and they find it, it's confirmation of God's word for them. Notice the ongoing effect in these men also, though, in verses 17 and 18. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They made it known, and all who heard it wondered. Um, sometimes in our, our world, we look at someone and we justify our own sin. We justify our own position in the world by saying, well, God sent an angel to these irreligious shepherds. And so I'm just going to continue living life as I did prior. But the truth of the matter is that when God's word came to the shepherds and when they observed what they observed, when they observed King Jesus lying in a manger, um, they were changed. They were transformed. There was no living the way that they lived prior. In fact, their speech, which was probably pretty crass prior to the angels showing up, became consumed with the announcement that they had heard and what they observed. These men and their response came as a result of God's word brought to them in this moment. Because these aren't the people who we would expect to be God's first evangelists. But the good news of great joy was given for them to tell. Because they heard and they went and they saw. And so we learn that here, it doesn't really matter where you are or who you are when the gospel reaches you. The call is to come and see. The call is to repent and believe. To come to Jesus is the only one who can who can deal with the sin that weighs you down. He's the only one who can offer you eternal life. Not to justify your actions personally, but to fall on the one who freely justifies. The good news of great joy is for all people. Not that everyone will respond in the way that the shepherds did. I know that you, many of you in this room have shared the gospel regularly with family members and friends and coworkers, and there have been tears shed because they don't respond. They stare at you blankly and say, I can't believe it. I can't believe that. The reality of the good news of great joy is that it is a global takeover. We, we live in wild, wild times. But the good news is still accompanied by great joy. The good news is still accompanied by great joy. They can't be separated from one another. They are woven together so intimately. Because of what it means for our future and eternity and unbroken, uninhibited relationship with our Creator God, Good news of great joy. But also, because of what God has given us now. 
The Apostle Paul doesn't tell us, or the Apostle Paul doesn't tell us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice just because of what's coming, but because of also who already came. Verse 20. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told to them. That good news of great joy led to the shepherds glorifying and praising God. They returned to their flocks. They returned to the everyday stuff of life, glorifying and praising God. They were changed. They had experienced something they could have never expected. God chose to reveal good news of great joy to them, not because they were wise and powerful, not because they were of noble birth, not because they had something positively going for them, like we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a few weeks ago. They were anything but those things. They fit the category of nothing. But God chose what is nothing to bring to nothing. God chose what is nothing to bring to nothing things that are. When God showed up, He was going to flip everything on its head, revealing that His Messiah, not to kings, not to princes, not to the politically powerful, but to lowly shepherds, so that there would be no doubt. That salvation comes from the Lord and not from man. This is a no-doubter. There is nothing more lowly that God could have revealed this great salvation to. There are no people more lowly than God could have brought this salvation through than two obscure Hebrew women and shepherds in their field. So as we wrap up this morning, I think, it's, I think it's pretty common for us to find bursts of joy during the holiday season. There are things in your life that you're going to rejoice in and through, and you'll give glory to God because you'll see that those things are good gifts from Him, and that they're meant to point you to Him. At the same time, the holidays can be a challenge. But even for a short while, you and I, we basically experience joy in good times with the loved ones or space to stop and reflect on good things. So I think we should pause and reflect a little longer on the angel's statement, especially good news of great joy. The I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Because the gospel message is accompanied by great joy. Again, they're woven together. They're inseparable. They can't be pulled apart. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ defeated the final enemy, that is death. Jesus Christ is reigning at this very moment as king. And because this good news and all that scripture tells us about it, this is really good news. Um, there is no response other than praising and glorifying God and rejoicing with great joy. We often grumble. I do this all the time. We often grumble about the circumstances, the way that the world looks, how it doesn't actually fit what my plan is. I do this regularly. 
And honestly, friends, it's a matter of belief. This is it. This is a matter of belief. The shepherds respond in belief and went to find the baby in the manger and they rejoiced when they found him. How much more do we have reason to rejoice? The baby they found there is now the king of all creation, ruling and reigning from the Father's right hand. He established a beachhead here on earth. He established the church, a strategic outpost for storming the gates of hell with his word in our hand and his spirit within us. Maybe you're wondering though, where does joy come from this Christmas? Where does it come from? And I want to say to you that God used small, forgotten, unsuspecting people to bring streams of water into the world from where he would begin filling the earth with the glory of himself as the waters cover the sea. If you're feeling marginalized, forgotten, lonely, God used small, forgotten, unsuspecting people. The one way that joy comes is through realizing that if you're in Christ, that's you. That's us. God uses small, weak, forgotten, unsuspecting people to shake the world. In Buffalo City Church, here in Jamestown, North Dakota, Christmas is a reminder the good news of great joy is for all people. Though we're a small church in a small city in a flyover state, maybe we represent the place from which King Jesus will shake the foundations of our culture. I don't think we should just think of that as a possibility. I think we should think of it as a reality. So, two Christmas considerations for you. First is this. God has not forgotten you. He sees you and He knows you. He sees you and He knows you. King David knew it. He wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He's called you and given you great treasure and declaring to you the good news of great joy. These shepherds, small, forgotten, unsuspecting, insignificant, poorly thought of, and they become the first recipients of this proclamation. You may feel lonely and forgotten this Christmas season. Believe the promise. The promise that you are not forgotten, that your God sees you and knows you, that your Father cares for you. That you bend the ear of the great high priest when you pray. That you have the laser-focused, complete attention of the king who exacts his irresistible will and is always doing so for your good. God has not forgotten you. But even more than this, don't just leave it there. Even more than this, God has called you into his service. He sees you so intimately. He knows you. He knows everything going on inside of your heart and head. He knows every place that you've been this week. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And he's still calling you into his service. And there's great joy here because the shepherds were seen and known by God despite being forgotten by everyone else. And immediately they're called to come and see. And they returned to their life, glorifying and praising 
God for all that they had heard and seen. We're called into God's service. This is true of every Christian all of the time. God has called you into his service. And your life is to be fully submitted to the authority of King Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're on a hill watching smelly shepherds in the first century, or if you're in the cubicle at work in 2021, or if you're around the Christmas tree opening presents. There's no on-off switch here. God has called you into his service. He has not forgotten you. And this shouldn't be overwhelming. It should be like, oh, that's another thing for me to do. It should be exciting. It should be a source of joy. Yes, your God sees you and has not forgotten you, but there's so much more. He doesn't just look passively at you from a distance. He doesn't just look at you and say, oh, there they are, and then, oh, there they are. Cool. He genuinely, he did this with the shepherds. He plucks you, unsuspecting you out of wherever you are and puts you into his service. He gives us, the church, the grand task of glorifying and exalting and praising his name and being that beachhead for the good news of great joy, which is for all people, which is extend to the people of Jamestown, to the people of the region in North Dakota, the United States of America, and across the globe. King Jesus calls us into his service to live as citizens of his kingdom, to live as ambassador in a foreign land, to boldly and courageously proclaim Christ wherever we go. Last week in our Bible reading plan, um, uh, Luke 15 and the prodigal son. Um, when the wayward son comes home, just listen to how the father treats him. In verse 20 in Luke 15, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. But it doesn't end there. And verse 20 goes on and said, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Deep affection for his child. Not just a passive looking, but a a full embrace. Expression of affection. But it doesn't end there. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the, beast, uh, the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. Friends, we are clothed as sons and daughters of our father. We are given the markers of his household. Not this passive seeing, not just not the, the embrace and the affection, but also the markers of his household. Isn't that the kid who ate with the pigs? <laughs> Aren't those those unclean shepherds? Yes. But it's God's good pleasure to put the most unsuspecting, the weakest, the most wayward, small, far forgotten people into his service. God is filling the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. He began by using some shepherds and two obscure women, and he continues by using us. (laughs) Dumping bucket after bucket of good news of great joy, which is for all people, watching the glory of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Friends, this is Jesus Christ come into the world. Rejoice this Christmas season. 
Rejoice that He sees you, that He knows you, that He's called you into His service, that He loves you, He's given you the markers of His household. You did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for the truth that's contained here in this passage. God, that you have not forgotten us and that you have given us everything that we need. God, would our hearts be inclined to you as we go from this place? God, would we feel a deep affection for you as the one who has called us? It doesn't just see us passively, but called us into the depths of your service despite where we've been, despite what we've said and done. Your grace overflows and it brings us home. God, would we be reminded of our first love? God, would we be reminded of the way in which you work, your good pleasure, so that we might proclaim and declare that salvation is only in and through you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.